0: I'm going to use the text that was read tonight as a springboard. The the topic tonight is the tenet of our faith, evangelical repentance. There will be many verses that I'll refer to, but this story is certainly a vivid illustration of what repentance is all about. So if you'll find your place there in the Gospel of Luke, I was thinking, uh, as I made a little uh, recording for the Hass presentation, that uh, it doesn't do real well for Brother Hass and I to visit together. We make some visits together, but we don't go to the hospital together. Uh, we've had some some calls. He has a queasy stomach. I have a queasy stomach. I'll never forget one time we went to see. I think it was a guy who had been at a bad wreck or something, and he was just... Every part of him was just a bandage. And uh, as we st- stood there trying to, to give comfort and solace to the guy, both of us were reeling. And I think I just probably just about passed out. So we have... We have some funny stories uh, to tell uh, during these 30 years, and I'll not do that now. But I thought I, I, we do some visiting together, but we save some of those others. I'll, both of us need somebody stronger if we're going to, to graphic hospital visits. I think some of the children are coming to sing tonight. It's such a joy to have all of you folks. Let's ask the Lord to bless them and to bless the message. Now, Lord, we come to worship and honor you and honor your servants, but we come to hear your word tonight. I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom and that you would teach us these things that we need to know. We thank you that your spirit has borne along with us and that He brings us to that place of repentance and faith. We rejoice in that, and we ask for His work to continue in this place, in our ministries of giving out the gospel, because we know, as the old song says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we pray that in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. The ninth tenet of our statement of faith reads, Repentance is an evangelical grace wherein a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evil of his sin. Humbleth himself for it with godly sorrow and detestation of it with self-abhorrence, and with a purpose and endeavor to walk with God as, so as to please him in all things. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Ezekiel 36 verse 31. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways. And your doings that were not good. And shall loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. In Acts chapter 11, and verse 17, when the Jews heard that the gospel had reached the Gentiles and it had been recounted to them the, the signs and wonders that were replicated when they received the gospel, their report was, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as He did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ... What was I that I should withstand God? Peter is recounting. When they heard these things, they held their peace, the Jews, and glorified God, saying, Then hath also God given to the Gentiles repentance unto eternal life. Notice their wording there, that God had granted them, had given them repentance. In Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, the apostle writes, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry. There was a, a horrible sin in the church that had not been dealt with. And he says, I rejoice not that you were just sorry, not that you just had bad feelings, but that you sorrowed to repentance. And so we see he's delineating a difference here in just being sorry and a sorrow to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing for Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So we see Paul referring to a repentance that's not a godly repentance that leads to true and genuine conversion and salvation. There is a repentance of the world. And no one exemplifies that more than Judas, whom the Scriptures recorded repented of what he had done, but not unto salvation. This Bible says very specifically he was a devil and never believed. Our Lord's first recorded words of ministry had to do with repentance. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Now that after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is preaching the gospel. What does he say in this gospel he's preaching? Saying the time is fulfilled. Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is near. He's here. I am the kingdom of God. It begins with me, the Messiah, and a kingdom. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And our Lord said, repent ye and believe the gospel. Our Lord's last words recorded in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. And He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and in the Psalms concerning me, then opened He their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. And He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the day of the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, And ye are witnesses of these things. There are two words that are used in the New Testament which are translated in our English, repent or repentance. Only one of these is used of repentance associated with salvation from sin. This is the verb form of metaneo and the noun form of it metanoia. There's another noun translated repentance found only in the Old Testament in its noun form, and the verb form of it is used in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 21, verse 29, where the son refuses to work in the father's vineyard. The father asked the son to go work in his vineyard, and he refuses, but afterward repented himself and went. He just simply changed his mind and said, yes, I will go. It is found describing Judas's re- repentance in Matthew 21. And, and as we've already mentioned, no one could, could point and say that Judas repented unto salvation or that it was a genuine heartfelt change. The word, as I mentioned, most often used is the word metneo. And it means to consider, to perceive afterwards, and to absolutely change one's view, mind, or purpose, or even judgment implying disapproval of and abandonment of past and former opinions and purposes and the adoption of others which are absolutely different. James Pettigrew voice in his Abstract of Theology, writes, In every case there is an inward change that results in the outward change of life. It also includes a sorrow for sin that a change of view as to what sin is. And of the holiness that must be accompanied by regret and sorrow as to the past acts of sin. Our Lord said Himself in Luke 5 verse 31, They that are whole need not a physician. You'll remember the audience who was listening to Him, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were cloaked in their own self-made righteousness, who had no clue of what repentance and salvation was, but who considered themselves well on their way to heaven, practically entering the gates. And Jesus said to them, Those who are well need not a physician. They would have agreed with that, wouldn't they? Those who are whole and well and not sick don't know, need to go to a doctor. But our Lord said, But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, literally the self-righteous, those who have made themselves righteous by their own works. I have not come to call those people but sinners to repentance. There are several elements when comparing Scripture with Scripture, several truths that come to light in this matter of repentance. First of all, there is an intellectual and spiritual understanding of the opposites of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. These two things are diametrically opposed. They're at either end of the spectrum. Man's sinfulness and God's holiness. God's holiness is something that's very difficult for us to comprehend. In any effort to... Bring it to light is almost a failure to do so. I was searching and thinking about how we could compare and contrast God's holiness with our sinfulness. We never quite see our sin in in the light of God's holiness unless the work of the Holy Spirit shows us that. And I, I must point out to us that all sin is absolutely reprehensible to God. In Him is light and there's no shadow of turning, no darkness at all. If you were to conceive in your heart without being graphic, without, but just to try to get the point across of the worst atrocity that you can think of. I mentioned this morning some offense to some little one, one of these precious babies here some crime, some mortal crime done against them, how reprehensible that would be to our sight, how repulsive it would be to us, how absolutely heart-wrenching it would be. We must see that God's holiness is in that manner toward all sin. And truly, we must ask the Lord to show us the depth and the depravity of our sin. So there there must be this understanding But not just merely a mental understanding and assent. Repentance then, we might say, is is not just a mental agreement. Yes, I've done wrong. Judas agreed with that, didn't he? He came to that agreement. Boy, I've messed up here and my actions have caught up with me. And I'm sure he felt really sorry or bad about it to a degree. So we would have to say that repentance is not just a mental assent or agreement alone, but a, a genuine mourning and sorrow over our sinfulness and the acts of sin. There's an earnest desire to be done with it and to be separated from it. It becomes despicable in the sight of the sinner. We see that illustrated for us very graphically in the story that our Lord gave here of the prodigal son. We see an absolute change from the beginning of this story to the end. In the beginning, it was proud and haughty. There, every time we read this story, we feel absolutely our blood boil at someone being so heartless and cold that he wanted what was only come to him after his father's death. He wanted it now. And he demanded it. That high-handed insolence and disrespect for his father to demand his inheritance now. And uh, that his attitude that it's mine, I deserve it, you ought to give it to me, all of that that just makes our blood boil. When you read that story, don't you absolutely abhor the, the boy in the way he acts toward his father? Aren't you glad that the Lord does not stop there? He gives us the whole picture. And you know, as he's been read to us, he goes out and lives riotously. He, with wine, women, and song. And finally, he, verse 17, gives us a... Verbal and a visual description of the inner work of repentance in a person's heart. When he came to himself, he saw himself finally at last as he was. He used up all of the money and he had joined himself to feed a man's pigs, which no self-respecting Jewish boy would have anything to do with pigs. It was absolutely unthinkable but that's the only employment he could get to the point that he was he was tempted to eat the food that he was going to feed the pigs does it get any worse than that have you ever been around pigs and what pigs eat i praise god that my parents had the presence of mind to sell the farm right when i was a little boy and moved to town and that i don't have all the stories that my older brothers and sisters tell about the slopping of the hogs and the pigs and all the rest but I have been to the farm. I did go back on visits. And I have just a little bit of an idea of what that was like. He would gotten to the place where he was considering to survive, to eat what he was about to feed the man's pigs. And when he came to himself, we see this mental change. This is a far cry from, give me what comes to mind. I want to be rich and wealthy and show off. And all those thoughts that he had. How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise. You see, he didn't just have thoughts; his thoughts gave action, didn't he? I'm not. There's one thing to wake up in the in the the the, uh, the pig slop and say, "This is horrible. I really shouldn't be here." But you know, this is where I am. There's nothing to do about it. This is guess this is where I'm going to live life and just settle in with the pigs. His his agreement with what he had done, gave rise to action. I will arise and go to my Father. And he rehearsed ahead of time, I will say unto him. So repentance brought action, it brought change of words. How different were these words than the words he spoke to his Father when he demanded his inheritance? I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven Not just you. So you see this is a picture of the heavenly Father. I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He brings no conditions. I have witnessed, I've been around people who professed repentance, but they had terms that went along with it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm sorry I was wrong and I want to be made right, but... And they give you the the, the conditions upon which... This, this guy gives no conditions whatsoever. He's thr- flinging himself at his father's mercy. I am not worthy to be called your son, much less of your servant. Treat me as one of your servants. I would rather be a servant of yours than the servant to the man with the pigs. Because you are a just father. No matter what you would do, it will be right. He arose. He came to his father. You see the action... The change of heart, the change of mind, the change of behavior. But when he was a yet a great way off, his father saw him. And again, he says in verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and against, in thy sight. He didn't change his tune once he got there. But you always were harder on me than you were always favored the elder brother. That's why I acted. He gave no excuses for his sin like so often we hear today that something's called repentance. But you had a favorite and if you hadn't put me in a bad situation, I wouldn't want to run off that way. None of that. He said exactly what he knew was right. And I'm no more, more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, and you know the rest of the story, the restoration, the blessing. Repentance includes a sincere and earnest turning to God for help and deliverance from sin. No one else can deliver us from sin. Seeking pardon for guilt. And, and a pardon is, is not something we deserve A pardon says, yes, I'm guilty, but would you remove the guilt of my sin? Seeking pardon for guilt and help to escape its power in its presence. True repentance comes from the soul. It's not just an intellectual exercise, a change of opinion. As some who are enlightened or who take a course or who become... uh, Part of a new thing or a new church or a religion. It's not just going through something and saying, Oh, now I believe this way. I've changed my opinions about this or that. That's not repentance. It's not just the mind, uh, uh, an act of the mind, and, and just the emotions, even. We can cry buckets of tears. I'm sure that just before Judas hung himself, he cried a lot. He, the scripture seems to give us the indication he was absolutely distraught and felt that he was beyond hope. There was tears and and a horrible feeling, and so repentance while he's emotional, it is not just based on the emotions. In fact, you might not be able to gauge the depth or the sincerity of a person's repentance by their outward emotions alone. But just it's not just a, a work of the emotions, but from deep within the inner man of the heart, the hidden man, as the Scripture refers to it, the soul hates the sin and the the atrocity uh, in the nature of the sin. It's defilement and the grief that it brings the Father. Do you see that shown in the the story that we read? Oh, what have I done to my Father? I've broken His heart. And my sin has caused a horrible reflection against my Father. And that's the way the sinner views his sin. The soul determines to part from it and to forsake it, not just to confess it. The Bible teaches that that true repentance comes from God. We've seen verses that that the Jews rejoiced when they heard of the conversion of the Gentiles that God has granted them repentance. In Acts 5, verse 31, it is said that Christ had been exalted to give repentance to Israel. Speaking of their conversion on the day of Pentecost, that He hath given repentance to Israel and the remission of sins. And as we've seen, in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, that the Gentiles were given repentance unto life, eternal life. James Pettigrew Boyce, in his abstract of principles, writes The means used is the preaching and other exhibition of the truth. Repentance, like faith, comes through the hearing of the word. By this, men are exhorted to that duty and gain the knowledge of the truths taught by God. Through spiritual apprehension of which men are led to such truth. But if this is so, and if Jesus and the Apostles so clearly preached repentance, if the first public words that we have on record by the Holy Spirit that Jesus said was repent and believe the gospel, and his last words go into all the world that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all nations, how have we gotten to the place? where this is almost absolutely ignored in modern day evangelism and some even preach and teach against it. How is it that that is the case today? Why is it that we so rarely hear it in so-called gospel preaching and presentations today? Why is it a rare jewel in the crown of God's glorious gospel? Way back in 1937, Dr. Henry Ironside, the famed pastor of Moody Memorial Church, in Chicago, lamented, and he wrote in a book that he wrote, "Except you repent, and you'll recall those words are words that our Lord uttered when a crowd came to him and said, Why did the tower fall on those people at Siloam? Were they greater sinners? Because were they? Was God getting revenge on them because they were sinners? And then they asked about those who had been slaughtered, bringing their sacrifices." that Herod had slaughtered some who were on their way to church, so to speak. What was Jesus' response? Were they greater sinners than everybody else? These were two events that had just happened that had everybody talking. And their uh, erroneous assumption is that these must have been really bad people for these things to have happened to them. And our Lord's response was, the title of Henry Ironside's book, Except you repent, you will likewise perish. What an answer to give to people who are seeking the truth. That upsets seekers who are just wanting to find out what you believe. And our Lord says, in effect, it doesn't matter how you die, whether a tower falls on you or gets slaughtered, dead is dead, right? You're going to wake up somewhere, and if you have not repented and believed the gospel, you'll be eternally lost. That was our Lord's comforting words to those eager seekers that day. He writes, The doctrine of repentance, this is Henry Ironside, is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. He spoke of professed preachers of grace who, like the antinomians of old, decry the necessity of repentance, lest it seem to invalidate the freedom of grace. Some even teach that repentance was an Old Testament work alone. They must not have read the New Testament. I've read several verses that that absolutely takes that out of the question. Some even teach that repentance was an Old Testament work alone. It was done away with after the resurrection of Christ. If so, why would all the apostles require sinners to repent in their preaching and in their New Testament writings? Dr. Ironside went on to write, Our Lord's words, and Dr. Ironside was a dispensationalist. But he says, Our Lord's words, except you repent, you shall likewise perish, are as important today as when they're first uttered. You do know there are those who think that the preaching of Christ and the apostles was under the kingdom age, and there's a new way of doing it in the the epistles. And that's that's where some hyper dispensationalists and I hate to use words in that way, but to describe it in that uh, little small span of Scripture is where they primarily stay. And Dr. Ironside, who was a dispensationalist, said, "...no dispensational distinctions, important as they are in understanding and interpreting God's ways with man, can alter this truth." He wrote, "...shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible fact of man's sinfulness and guilt, calling on all men everywhere to repent, results in shallow conversions... And so we have myriads of glib-tongued professors today who give no evidence of regeneration whatsoever. Prating of salvation by grace, they manifest no grace at all in their lives. Loudly declaring they are justified by faith alone, they fail to remember that faith without works is dead and that justification by works before men is not to be ignored as though it were in contradiction to justification by faith before God. Somehow, beginning even then in the 1930s and through the 40s and 50s and so on, there slowly came to be, in the, for lack of better words, in evangelical circles, the idea that to preach repentance was preaching works. And that since we are saved by grace in that type of thinking, that the emphasis came to be solely on belief and on believing. I would Remind those who hold that opinion that the devils believe they are not atheists. Every time they address the Lord in the Scriptures, they knew who he was. Are you come before the time to destroy us? They said they know there's a day of judgment. They know they will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. Remember, when? when are you come to torment us before the time, before our time? They know Bible teaching and, and prophecy, don't they? And so the devils believe. Belief alone is not salvation. There was a failure to to perceive and teach that repentance and faith were inseparably joined. Two sides of the same coin and that both constitute saving faith. Repentance is a vital part of conversion. We see it in, in almost every conversion that we, we just preach through the book of Acts. And as we examine those conversions, we see a dramatic change not only of thought and idea, but of action. We could, we could begin with the thief on the cross, for example. Do you realize that both thieves, at the beginning of that ordeal, both were railing and cursing Jesus Christ, the Scripture says. Calling on Him to, to do come down off the cross and to save them and themselves. But somewhere in those hours of hanging there, the one thief had a change of heart. In mind, He stopped his railing and his cursing, and obviously we see the results of the work of grace in his heart and repentance because he turned savingly upon the Lord and asking him to remember him when you come into your kingdom. Well, he changed his mind, hadn't he? While he could not come down off that cross to be baptized or to wipe the sweat from his brow or the blood from the wounds or do anything, he was crying out in faith, a repentant faith to the Lord. We see it throughout all the New Testament where true repentance is. It's is the, the part of the conversion process. The theologian Burkhoff writes, true repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, where there is true faith, there's also real repentance. The two cannot be separated. They are simply complementary parts of the same process. And so we see in the New Testament it's not just a change of opinion, joining a new group, uh, uh, just a, a, chain, a turnaround uh, in opinions, but also a turnaround in their actions and behavior. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the life of the Apostle Paul. We continually look at his conversion, but it clearly shows exactly what we're thinking about here. You know Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees high up in Judaism, no man more respected or learned than Paul who actually had license from the high priest to do whatever it took to exterminate this new thing, this, those of the way, followers of Jesus Christ. He dragged men and women from their homes and from their, their assemblies and imprisoned them. And in a moment, a period of time, there on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him and broke his heart, broke his stubborn will. And Paul was absolutely changed, wasn't he? He went a different direction, literally and physically. And everything he thought was right had been turned upside down. And he embraced, he called this one that he was trying to extinguish, he called him, Lord, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, You turned to God... Same word there. You turn to God from idols and not just change your opinion. Okay, there are no more idols. There's a God in heaven. It didn't end there. True repentance goes on to serve the living and true God. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament by the renowned Joseph Henry Thayer. Thayer's lexicon defines repentance as the change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and their misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and a sorrow for it and a hearty amendment, the the tokens and effects which are all good deeds. Repentance, then, is not a work, not a human work. It is a divine work. It is a gift from God The Gentiles were given repentance. The Jews on the day of Pentecost, the Scripture says, were granted repentance. That is a gift. If you give something to someone, it is something they did not have, but you bequeathed them. God gave them repentance like every part of redemption. Could we say, could we lay claim, could we brag about any part of the process of our conversion? Who in a testimony service could say, I was so good and so lovely and so sweet that... And so loved the Lord that He looked down and and saved me. Or whatever else you could commend. That's not grace. That's not repentance. That's self-righteousness. Is there anything that we could lay hold to and give credit to that in our coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior? Whatever it is you can point to, I will tell you that God orchestrated it. The godly home. The person who came to your door. The bus who came and picked you up and brought you to Sunday school. We see that from the Garden of Eden to the very last person who will be saved, God is the instigator. God is the initiator. God sought Adam. Adam, where are you? We see it all through the Scripture. Was Paul seeking for Messiah when Messiah found him? And changed Him. And we could go down through the Scriptures. And if there is an appearance of someone seeking the Lord, that inner work had already begun by the planting of the seed in the heart. J.I. Packer writes, The repentance that Christ requires of His people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which He may make on their lives. Real repentance alters the character of the whole man. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Repentance means that you realize that you're guilty, that you're a vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and the punishment of God, that you are hellbound. bound It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world and its mind and outlook as well as its practice and you deny yourself as our lord said and take up your cross and go after christ your nearest and dearest and the whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania you have to suffer you may have to suffer financially but it makes no difference that is repentance and I might add that repentance is not a one-time act. The repentance that takes place at conversion is progressive. It's a lifelong process. And 1 John 1, nine tells us that in the tense of the Greek, it is he who keeps on asking for forgiveness. God will keep on cleansing. The active, continuous attitude of repentance produces in us the poverty of spirit that our Lord speaks about in Matthew 5 a mourning over our sin and a meekness that Jesus spoke of there in Matthew. It is the mark of every true believer. Repentance was at the heart of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost when he laid the guilt and the charges of the murder of Jesus Christ solely on the backs of his hearers. Not exactly a feel-good message of something good's going to happen to you today and God's got a wonderful plan for your life if you just let him in. Peter charged them with the death of the darling of heaven. You with wicked hands have taken and slain the only begotten Son of God. It was that kind of preaching that caused the thousands to cry out, what must we do? What are we to do? Someone has said we don't see those kinds of results in our day. And I would add we don't hear that kind of preaching In our day. The result was the Holy Spirit was pleased to grant repentance to thousands that day. Who cried out, what must we do? What did Peter tell them to do? Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. It was at the heart of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. After all, salvation from sin is a conversion, isn't it? A conversion is not just an alteration, it's an absolute change, a complete change, a transformation. And Paul writes For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, and that if he died for all, they which live should not henceforth live to themselves. As the gospel you hear presented sometimes says, well, it doesn't matter. You can work it out somehow or another. You whatever. They should not live to themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Isn't that what Jesus said? You must take up your cross if you'll come after Me and follow Me. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, that we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we Him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature... How can we gloss over that? How can we say that that, that's not what it means? Radically change from what one was to something they were not. He's a new creature. That sounds like a, a new birth to me, doesn't it, you? It sounds like being born again. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Does it say some things, as you can get around to it, become new? This is not to say that sanctification is not progressive. You know as well as I do that the Holy Spirit begins to work in our heart and begins to teach us and to show us the ways of the Lord. But I would tell you that genuine repentance and conversion, the one who is genuinely coming to Christ, throws themselves at the mercy of the Lord as the thief on the cross. Lord And it's it's the Apostle Paul. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? All things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's our part to tell others that they need to be reconciled to Christ. They are an enemy of God and of Christ. And people would argue with you about that, wouldn't they? Oh, I love the Lord. I'm not an enemy. The Scripture says that every person in their natural state is an enemy of God and an enemy of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to be made right with God is to be reconciled to Him through the work of His Son. We have to tell people that. That's not good news in and of itself, is it? But the good news is that there is a Savior who will reconcile you and make you right with God the Father if you'll come to Him. As though by God did beseech you by us, we pray, we beg you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Let me ask you, and let me ask this preacher, when is the last time you begged somebody to be reconciled with God? For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at the great grace that You've shown and displayed to us at Calvary. We marvel that there is a Savior who came and died in our place, and that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives to show us these things. Lord, I pray that tonight there may be some one or ones who are listening, that you would grant to them repentance, that you'd give them that gift to see you as, as you are and themselves as they are. We pray for that regenerating work of the Spirit that we have studied about in the life. Oh Lord, we pray that you'd add many to your kingdom by your gospel. We pray in Jesus' precious name and for His sake, Amen.